If you've got your Bible, guys, turn to Exodus chapter 1. If you haven't got a Bible, just pop your hand up and you'll get you one. If you haven't got one of our swanky new um, Exodus booklets as well, pop your hand up and Andy will get you one. There he goes, working double time this afternoon. Um, if you haven't got a booklet, Andy will get you one and you can use that booklet just to follow along where we are each week. You can write your notes in there. It's got GC questions in there as well. And uh, that'll be a helpful resource for you as you go week to week. Exodus chapter 1. Last week, we started off just building some context for the book of Exodus. And what we saw was Exodus is really the story of God's people. It's our story. This isn't just a story that's written in history. It's not just a story that's written in the Bible. This is a story that connects deeply with who we are as God's people. And we said it's a story that every human needs to find themselves in. It's a story that resonates with us. We're going to see the places that God's people go to, the places that they come out of, the pain that they experience, the hope that they hold on to. They resonate with who we are as human beings. And we saw, as we just laid this foundation last week, firstly, that God's people are created for rest. That is what God created us for. And we saw that as we went all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter one, and we walked through the creation account and we saw each of the first five days God creates and we see what he's created around us. God creates and the refrain which comes after every day is God looked at what he created and he saw that it was good. But then when he gets to day six and he creates humanity, a slight difference he looks on what he's created and this time he sees what he has made and it was very good thanks guys and often we think that day six is the culmination is the pinnacle of creation but actually it comes in day seven day seven god looks at all the work that he has done and he rests That is the goal for all creation, rest in the presence of God. God creates us in his image, male and female. He created them. He places us into his presence, into the garden of Eden. He gives us a purpose. If you remember that from last week, we have a a purpose. God gives us a promise to take his glory all the way around the world, to be fruitful and multiply. He brings us into that promise. And there is a promise for us to remain in God's restful presence as long as we walk in obedience to him. That is what freedom is, to walk in obedience to the promises of God and to enjoy the rest that we find in his presence. And Adam and Eve enjoyed that, at least for a while. And we need to see, guys, Adam and Eve, as we read the story in Genesis of our creation, they're not fictional characters. There's a bit of a drive at the moment in some churches and in some parts of Christianity to to see Adam and Eve as just Um, literary characters, just people that maybe we can relate to. They're not actually real people. They're just people that Moses wrote into the Bible to help us understand how God... That's rubbish. They are real people. They were real people. And we need to believe that they're real people because we are their descendants and everything that they were, all of their nature, all of the consequences of the way they live, we inherit. Just like from our parents, we will inherit who they are and what they do in the same way we inherit all that Adam and Eve were and did, including their nature. 
We started in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and we ended right at the end in Revelation chapter 21. Start of the Bible, end of the Bible. And we saw in Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 the culmination of God's promise. So God gives a promise to his people to take his glory all the way across the world. And it's a promise that as we walk in obedience to him, we will enjoy his rest. That is what humanity is created for, to enjoy the rest of God in his presence. And in Revelation 21, we see the promise fulfilled. At that point in the time to come in the new creation when Jesus has returned and made all things new, God's people will be brought into the new creation and we will enjoy the fullness of the promise of God. We will enjoy his rest. And at that time, John the Apostle, as he looks forward, he sees a time where there will be no more tears, no more shame, no more sorrow, no more suffering. It will be a time where God's people enjoy his rest for all eternity. We are created for rest with God. What we saw at the end of Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 to 7 is yes, that is what we are created for. But that is not where God's people are yet. In fact, at the end of verse 7, we look back at the first few verses of Exodus and we see they're not in the place of God's rest. They're in a physical place called Egypt. They're in Egypt. Yes, they may be multiplying. Yes, they may be the people of God. Yes, they may be taking his image and carrying on his purpose, but they have not found the promise of rest just yet. And here's why. Because although we are created for rest with God, the situation that every single one of us finds ourselves in as we come into this world is a situation of slavery. Sin and slaves. That is the context that God's people find themselves in in Exodus chapter 1. They find themselves in slavery, physical slavery. So they are being enslaved by the king of Egypt, by Pharaoh. But actually, and we're going to see this all the way through Exodus, where we see a physical reality with God's people, we need to think in spiritual realities as well. So yes, they may be in physical enslavement, but that is a picture of their spiritual enslavement as well. See, Adam and Eve were placed into the perfect rest of God's presence, but we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, right? Satan comes alongside them and whispers lies into their ears. Did God, did God really say, don't eat from that tree? And he allows them to believe that the freedom that they have in the presence of God isn't actually freedom at all. The relationship with God is actually slavery. If you really want freedom, you need, to, you need to make your own choices. You need to take hold of your own destiny. Don't listen to God. And that is exactly what they don't do. Instead of listening to God, they listen to God's great enemy, Satan. And they walk in disobedience to God's commands. And the covenant, the promise of God's eternal rest for his people is broken. And humanity, as we find ourselves in Adam... We are taken out of Eden. We are taken out of the rest that we find in the presence of God. And we are taken into a life where we contend against sin. Contend against sin out there and contend against sin in here. And right the way through the Bible, we see this picture of painted of humanity being enslaved. Enslaved to our sin. We are bound to it. And that isn't something we can just wake up one day and walk away from. Just like we can't just decide one day not to be human anymore, although, I don't know, it's getting that way, isn't it? You can decide what you want to be, but you can't actually do that. 
In the same way, you can't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what? I'm not going to be a slave to sin anymore. We are enslaved to sin as we come into this world. And that is not a life that is worth boasting about. The sinful life is a dark life. Look down at verses 8 to 40, and I'm going to read it for us. We'll get to see what a, what a culture which is ingrained in sinfulness looks like. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard surface in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now remember, as we walk through Exodus, we have the physical realities which are representing a spiritual reality. So we see God's people here in physical bondage, in slavery. But what we hear described to us there is not just a description of what it is to be in physical slavery. It is a description of what it is to be in spiritual slavery. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about numbers being significant in the Bible. And the number seven, so the seventh day being when God rested in creation, the number seven in Hebrew literature being, being a picture of completion. So we see seven days, a perfect creation. And here on the flip side, we see seven descriptions of slavery, complete slavery. That is what God's people find themselves in. That is what every human who enters into this world finds themselves in, a position of complete slavery. So verse 11, they're afflicted. Their burdens are heavy. Verse 12, they are oppressed. Verse 13, they are ruthlessly enslaved. In verse 14, their lives are made bitter. The service that they endure is hard and the work that they do is ruthless. A complete picture of slavery, physically and spiritually. Remember, folks, Exodus is not just a historical narrative. It gives words, it gives pictures to our existence. And sin enslaves and it takes hold of us and it constrains us from what we were created to enjoy and take hold of. And before we think, well, surely God can just sort that out. Like, why would God allow us to come into a world as slaves? We need to see it as our doing. Our father, Adam, hands chains onto us and we willingly shackle up, turn our back on God. We want it that way. Left to our own devices. We would choose life without God. We would. We would choose to leave his rest and follow our own gods if it was only up to us. We would be what the Bible calls prodigals. You know that story, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Children who have left their home, a place of rest and security, left and gone to a foreign land where we think we'll be better off over there. I'm going to find true freedom over there. I'm going to take hold of freedom over there. I don't need someone here telling me what's good and what's not. And so we leave the safety and security of home and head off on our own. And outside of God, we are all prodigals. 
wandering far from the home of God, wandering far from his rest. And the prodigal life, the life outside of God, the life in Egypt, no matter how much we dress it up, a life outside of God is a life of slavery, not a life of freedom. We are created for rest, but sin enslaves us. And see, it doesn't get any better. We may want to try and find a way out of our sin, but the reality is our freedom, it is opposed. Our freedom is opposed. Doing a fantastic job here, Elizabeth. Karis, you should be worried. As much as we might all want to walk away from our slavery to sin, the reality is on our own we can't. Our freedom is opposed. Down in verse 16 to 21, you see a harrowing description of how dark the foreign land that we find ourselves in, the foreign land that we make our home in, this place where we are enslaved in our sin, we find how dark that place is. So the king of Egypt, I'm not going to read, I'm just going to walk us through. The king of Egypt, the pharaoh, he's unsettled with with how well God's people are growing. Like they're just multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And he talks to his generals and he thinks they're getting too big. They're going to get big enough that they'll be strong enough to overpower us and form their own army. And and they're they're going to take over. And so he comes up with a dark plan to get rid of God's people. He wants to bring an end to the promise of God for his people to be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth. And so he puts a mandate out, which is a mandate of genocide. All of the newborn sons of God's people he wants to be rid of. Now, folks, Pharaoh was a real person. The king of Egypt was real, like you can read this in history books, not just in the Bible. But he is also symbolic of all of the systems, all of the powers and all of the sin that stand opposed to God and his purposes. Like don't miss how dark and how evil he was. It's no coincidence you look in the history books and you see the crown that Pharaoh wore had a serpent on it. He's a picture of the forces that stand against humanity enjoying the peaceful presence of God. And those forces are dark And they are destructive. And they are present in the world. They are present in the schemes of the devil. And they are present in our own flesh. And the schemes that are used to oppose our freedom. Some of them are on the barbaric scale. Like genocide. Like war. And some of them much more subtle. And they come to us in the form of lies like this. You belong here. You belong here. You belong in this world that is enslaving you. This is home. You're not a prodigal. You haven't wandered far from home. This is where you belong. So don't try and find freedom somewhere else. Don't go to God and try and find freedom. You can find it here. This is where you belong. And that lie is told to us from all quarters of culture, all the way from politics to BBC News to Instagram to Disney. They all tell us the same lie that you belong here. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these things are pawns of the devil. Like, if you want to go on Instagram, that's fine. If you have a Disney account, that's fine. I'm not saying that. And in fact, those things are just telling us what we want to hear. That this world is not that bad after all. That we can live our best life now. That's a lie. We don't belong here. The reality is, what we're told is home Really, when we're shackled and enslaved, 
Home for us is just that square meter in front of us that our chains will stretch to. All the while, the restful, peaceful presence of God is outside of our prison cell. The first lie is that we belong here. The second lie is that we can find freedom here. Back in 1992, there was a court case in America. And this court case had a ripple effect for how Western civilization understands freedom. And the quote's going to come up here. Sorry you guys can't see this on, um, on your screen, but I'll read it out nice and slow because this is an important uh, um, uh, truth that the world holds on to for what freedom means. This is what the judge said. Judge Anthony Kennedy said, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of freedom, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of the human life. Let me read it again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning of the universe and of the mystery of the human life. And that, that quote that he came up with, that understanding of human freedom has been the underpinning feature of the, the pro-choice movement, the LGBTQ trans movement. That is what underpins it today. And what he is saying is this, if you want freedom, don't listen to someone over there to define it. You say what freedom is. To be a human is to define your own freedom. To be a, a human is to, is to say, this is what it means for me to be a liberty. And whatever you define to be your freedom, you take hold of it. And that is up to you what it is. That is what it means to be authentic. Not to be told what freedom is, but to define your own freedom. See, we are told that we can do that. That the way to live, the way to find rest is to find your own freedom. And it's just not true listen to this here's an Adele quote for you you're missing out on all the good quotes today guys sorry a quote from Adele now Adele um, if you're a fan this is no um, uh, representation of her music she's a great musician well this is an interesting insight to where taking uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy's edict leads us to this idea that we can find our own freedom so she's recorded her latest album last year um 30, yeah? That's what it's called. And as she's recording it, if you're following her story, you'll know that she's made a few uh, different choices in her life. She's recently divorced her husband and uh, she's talking to Vogue magazine about what, what all the lyrics in her songs are about. And she explains what the heart of her message is and why really she wrote what she wrote. And this is what she says. She's talking about her nine-year-old son, Angelo. And she says this, I wanted to explain to him, to her son, through this record when he's in his 20s or 30s, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. If I can reach the reason why I left, which was the pursuit of my own happiness, even though it made Angelo really unhappy, if I can find that happiness and he sees me in that happiness, then maybe I'll be able to forgive myself for it. Wow. That's powerful. Here's what she's saying. I'm going to define my own freedom. I'm going to take hold of it and it will make me happy. And I don't care what the devastation is. I'm going to trample even on my son to get it. If it means divorcing my husband because I'm not happy. And listen, here's the story. There wasn't any adultery. There wasn't anything like that. She just wasn't happy. And so she divorced her husband, wrote her album and said, I'm sorry, son, this is going to be painful. But it's about what I want. Because I get to define my own freedom and that is the way to rest. 
Now listen to how she ends it. Maybe I'll be able to find forgiveness. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a free life to me, folks. That doesn't sound like a heart at rest to me. That sounds like someone who has pursued their own freedom, pursued their own happiness, and instead of finding rest, is finding guilt and shame and fear and despair. We were created for rest. Sin enslaves us. And even if we try and find ourselves out of that place, we find our route, our road to freedom is opposed because there are the lies being told to us that we belong here and that we can find our own freedom. And as we go and as we try and take hold of the freedoms that this world offers us, it's a little bit like, imagine a young boy who goes to a buffet, all-you-can-eat Pizza Hut buffet. We've all been there, right? But his parents aren't there. And he walks in, forget the salad. He goes straight for the pizza and he's gorging it up and he's eating it all up. And he takes all that he wants and eventually, he pukes all over it. <laughs> That's where freedom gets us if we go the way of the world, folks. We will eat at the buffet of the world until we are sick. Taking away the crash barriers doesn't mean that we have freedom. It just means that when we crash, we find ourselves in the ditch. This world and the things that are in it were not created to lead us to freedom. If we want freedom... If we want rest, we need to go home. We need to leave the foreign land that we find ourselves in. We need to go home. And in order to leave the place that we are, we need an exodus. The refrain last week in our first week, <coughs> as we looked at this book of Exodus, was that God never leaves his people without hope. God never leaves his people without hope. And we see that actually in uh, the portion that we have today in uh, chapter one, the rest of chapter one, we see God hasn't left his people. So although they find themselves enslaved in Egypt, look down at verse 12 with me and listen to how Egypt find themselves. The more they were oppressed, the more God's people were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So here's the picture. Egypt are oppressing God's people but Egypt are the ones who are fearful. And the more they oppress, the more they enslave, the more God's promise starts to bear fruit. So let's not think that even in our struggle against sin, God isn't at work. Even in our enslavement to sin, even in our darkest hours, don't think that God isn't at work. If you are God's child or God's daughter, he is always working for his glorious purpose. And that is what we see in Egypt. Hundreds of years before God gives promises to his people. He gives this promise in Genesis chapter 46, verse three to Jacob. He says this, I am God, the God of your father. So the God of um, Abraham, Isaac. And he says this, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. They're on a trajectory heading towards Egypt. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. Even in our lowest of moments, when we think the sin that we have indulged in, the sin that we have engaged in, has taken us so far from God that he wouldn't, he wouldn't give us any time. He wouldn't give us any of his affection. God promises to be with us. And God promises to draw us out. 
The way to get freedom, folks, is to leave. It is to have an exodus. The word exodus literally means to escape or, or the way out or exit. And the way that we have an exodus from our slavery to sin is not by our own strength. It's not by our own intuition. It's not by our own wisdom. Remember, we just can't walk away from our chains and and untie ourselves. That just doesn't happen. We need someone to come to us and to liberate us. We need someone to come and draw us out of our slavery. Now, it's interesting. When you read chapter two of Exodus, we're introduced to Moses. And on the surface, as you read it, Like you'd be forgiven to think maybe it's him. Maybe he's the one who's going to liberate God's people. Maybe he is the one who's going to save God's people. Like look down at verse 10 of chapter two. So I'll recap where we are in a minute. But in verse 10, you see that Pharaoh's daughter has found Moses and she gives him this name, Moses, because I drew him out of the water. So even in his name, even in Moses's name, you see just a hint that maybe he might be the one who draws God's people out. He might be the one who is the savior of God's people. In fact, there are hints all over chapter two that maybe Moses is the savior. Like if you know Moses' story, and we'll walk through it here in a second. You'll just see similarities with Jesus. Like his, his story of entrance into this world is so similar. So especially at this time of year when we're on the back end of Christmas just gone and we know the Advent story. As we read and as we see the story of Moses' birth, we see just so many similarities, so many mirrors. So as Jesus is born, there's Herod, a wicked ruler. As Moses is born, there is Pharaoh, a wicked ruler. Herod is fearful of God's people. Pharaoh is fearful of God's people. Herod gives out a command to get rid of all of the newborn sons. Pharaoh gives a command to get rid of all the newborn sons. Jesus flees to Egypt and finds salvation in Egypt. Moses is in Egypt and finds salvation in Egypt. Both of them have miraculous beginnings. Jesus is our saviour. Maybe Moses is being held up as a kind of saviour. And look at the start of chapter two. You'll know this bit of the story probably if you've watched any of the, the cartoons or you know the story of all Moses. To, to escape the genocide is put in a, mas- a basket, a basket, a basket by his mum. So in verse three, you see this, this description of how she, she hit him. Uh, verse three, chapter two. When she could hide him no longer, so presumably he'd got too big. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So in order to to save her son and to to have him escape the genocide, she makes up this basket made of bulrushes. She, She lines it with bitumen to make it waterproof. And she puts him in the Nile. Now, when we think the Nile... Don't think like this lovely bubbling river that just kind of roams through Egypt. Don't think of the cartoons. The Nile was horrible. Like the Nile was where all of the waste used to go into with dead bodies, poo, all sorts of horrible stuff. And it was wild. Like there were wild animals there. So even putting this child into the Nile is is an act of faith by Moses' mother. But here's what's really interesting. We hear that, that he is placed inside a basket. Now, we would just kind of pass over that and move on to the next verse. But if we were reading this in Hebrew, what we would read is that Moses' mother places him into an ark. It's the only other place in the Bible where we see that word mentioned apart from Noah. 
And just like God did with Noah in the flood, Moses is carried through the threat of destruction and he is saved through the waters. Maybe Moses is our savior. Maybe Moses is the one who's gonna lead this liberation. I mean, just look how he's brought up. He is placed into Pharaoh's household. He's looked after by Pharaoh's daughter. He is taught by Pharaoh's teachers. Like, this is a crazy story. Like, don't think that any of this story is normal. Here is a Hebrew boy who grows up in the kingdom of the world. Surely God's hand of favor is on this man. Surely he is raising him up to be some sort of savior, some sort of liberator. And then we, when we get to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, we see that he has even his own mini exodus. So listen to this in verse 11 of chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He goes out, he looks out, he sees God's people being oppressed and he's going to do something about it. And so he strikes down the Egyptian and murders him. And then quickly kicks a bit of sand over the body, hoping that no one will see what he's done, just to cover up what's happened. What he doesn't know is that some of his Hebrew brothers have been watching on. The next day, Moses comes out and he sees these two guys fighting against each other. And so he goes to confront them, goes to try and split them up and make the peace. And they turn to Moses and say, hang on a minute, are you going to do what you did to the Egyptian? Are you going to murder us? And Moses realizes that he's been caught. And he's filled with fear. And he runs away. And then in verse 15, Pharaoh hears of it. And he seeks to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses escapes Egypt. He exoduses Egypt. And where does he go? Midian. Now again, for us, Midian is like, oh, it's another place. Let's move on. Midian is in a place called, a region called Canaan. Now, if you know God's story, you'll know that Canaan is the place that God has promised for his people to find rest. Moses exits, exodus Egypt and finds himself in the place of God's promised rest. He has his own mini exodus. So maybe, maybe Moses is the guy. Maybe he's the liberator. Maybe he's the savior. And then we see he lands at a well and he finds this group of ladies at the end of chapter two. And they're being harassed by these different shepherds. They're there on their own trying to draw water. And these, these men are messing around. They're tormenting with them. And so Moses confronts them. He goes up to them and confronts the guys. And look in verse 17, what happens? The shepherds came and drove the ladies away, but Moses stood up and, what does it say? Anyone? I know you're all shouting it on Zoom. Saved them. Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. Like literally, he is their savior. He's brought salvation to these ladies. He helps them, he defends them, and he saves them. These ladies go back to their families and they describe what has happened. And listen to what they say in verse 19, how they describe Moses. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Like the more we hear about Moses, the more we think this is the guy, this is the savior, this is the one who's gonna lead the liberation. He's the savior of these girls. He's the one who draws for them. He's the one who defends them. He's the one who delivers them out of the hand of heart. Is Moses the hero of the story? 
Is he the one who our gaze as we walk through the book of Exodus? Is he the one who God wants us to look at and to follow and to, and to see as the saviour? No, not at all. In fact, you just need to rewind a few years and see him kicking the sand over a dead body to see this is not a guy that we should follow, folks. The hero of the story is found at the end of chapter two. Now, it's really interesting. Just have a look at this with me. The passage that we've been in, Exodus chapter one, verse eight, all the way through to chapter two, um, at the end of chapter two, verse 25, look at how it's bookended. So in verse eight, there arose a new king over Egypt. Chapter two, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And in between, you have a living God who is working to defend his people and bring about his glorious purposes. See, we will live in this world, in this foreign land, and we will try and find freedom. And we will look to the powers and the systems and and all of the glorious things in this world with all of their pomp and all of their wealth and all of their stature. And one day they will all be dead and gone just like Pharaoh. But there is one thing that remains, our living God. See, God is the hero of the story of the Exodus and we see it without doubt in verses 23 to 25. Let me read it for us. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. See, here's the reality for the people of God. Yes, we have been freed from our slavery by Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection on the cross, but we still contend with sin now. And there are moments, maybe even this week, as we've been contending against sin and contending against the brokenness of the world, the result of humanity's sin back in the garden, as we've come face to face with those things this week, and we've been crying out to God and wondering, does he even hear us? We are reminded this afternoon, yes, he does. The groans, the cries of God's people are lifted up to him. And what do we hear God does? He hears, he sees, he knows, and he remembers his promises. In the pain of our contention against sin and the brokenness of the world, we need to know that God sees, God knows, and he is faithful, and he is good. And his promise to bring us home into his eternal rest, it stands. One of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of what it is to live a life of trying to find freedom in the world and God welcoming us into his presence. It's Luke 15. We mentioned it before, the story of the prodigal son. We know it, right? So in Luke 15, Jesus is telling this parable. He says, there's a father with two sons. And the younger son comes to the father and, and he says to his father, I want my inheritance now. Like that's tantamount to wishing that his dad was dead. You only get your inheritance when your parents die. And so he says, dad, I want you dead. I want my money now. I want my wealth now. That's literally what he's asking for. And so the father gives it to him. Okay, go. Now the father's house is a place of peace and rest and safety, but he goes, he thinks he can find freedom somewhere else. And so the Bible says he goes to a far off land. He goes to a foreign land. 
Actually, when Moses is naming his son Gershom, that's how he views Egypt. It was a foreign land. I was a stranger, a sojourner in that land. I didn't belong there. But this younger son wants to go. And so he goes off to this far land and tries to find freedom. And so he spends his wealth and all that he has trying everything that's on the buffet, like the little boy who runs into Pizza Hut. And he tries a bit of that and it doesn't satisfy him. And he tries a bit of that and it doesn't satisfy him. And he comes to the end of himself when he has nothing left. He's tried all that the world has to offer, everything that promises rest and hope and meaning and freedom. And instead he finds himself in a pile of pig crap. And he comes to his senses and he realizes, I need to go home. Do you know what? Even if I was a servant to my father, I'd be better off than he And so he picks up his stuff and he starts to head home. And Jesus says this, so beautiful. While he was a long way off, his father sees him and has compassion on him and runs out to meet him. And paints this beautiful picture of a son who's walked in rebellion, who's tried to find freedom in the world, having the warmest embrace from his father. And there's no anger from his father. There's no disgraceful look from his father. In fact, the father says, put a ring on his finger, kill the fattened calf. My son who I thought was dead is alive. My son who I thought was lost is found. Let's celebrate. See, when we come to the Father, even when we've been walking in rebellion to our sin, if we are his child, he is not angry with us. He's not an angry father waiting to reprimand us. No, he runs towards us with his robe pulled up, with his sandals flying off everywhere. And he spreads his arms wide, ready to lavish us with his love and cry, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. And his cry of welcome drowns out our feeble excuses and apologies. Folks, we are created for rest. Sin enslaves us. We need to see that our freedom is opposed. We need to push back the lies of the world, the flesh, and our great enemy, Satan. We need to realize that we need an exodus. We need to go home. And we need to see like our Father. In the gift of his son coming to live for us, living the perfect life, dying our death on a cross, paying the penalty for our rebellion, for our being a prodigal, he has made a way for our welcome to bring us home as his sons and daughters into his glorious rest. So here's what I pray for us this week, folks, that we would have eyes to see the love of the Father, that we have eyes to see the the lies of the world, that we would have eyes to see that Jesus is the saviour of our story. Not anyone in this world, not anything in this world, but Jesus, the son of our loving father. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We confess that without you, we have no hope. We have no hope of freedom. We have no hope of rest. Many of us are exhausted, even this week, from our own sin and from the sin of others and from the brokenness of this world. And so, Father, we ask that you would hear our cries. 
right now, this afternoon, whether we're here in this room or listening online, hear our cries and by the power of your spirit, remind us of your promise. Remind us that you are faithful. Remind us that you are good. Remind us that you've promised to bring your people into your eternal rest. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come. Thank you, you've come to save us from ourselves, from our sin. Thank you, you've come to draw us out of our slavery into true freedom. Holy Spirit, I pray this week that you give us eyes to see the lies of the world, the lies of our flesh, the lies of the devil. Lies that try and convince us that we belong here, that freedom can be found here. So Holy Spirit, lift our gaze to Jesus and help us to believe that in him and him alone do we find freedom and do we find rest. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.